You're listening to the City Lights Podcast, where we are equipping you to exalt Jesus and extend the kingdom of heaven right where you are. Thanks for joining us. Hebrews 11, verse 22. We're in a series called One Faith. If you're just joining us, I mentioned it during the first sermon that when the Bible tries to explain love, it gives you a list of synonyms. Love is patient, love is kind. But when the Bible tries to describe faith, it has to use stories because faith in some ways is transmitted best through stories. And the reason why it's called one faith, it comes out of Ephesians 4 when Paul speaks to the church of Ephesians in the name of purifying their faith and keeping their, their faith sound and pure and not just haphazard and, and, and superstitious. He says, there's only one faith. Remember, there's only one faith. There's not, there's not a Tuesday faith and a Wednesday faith or a working faith or a church faith or a Faith is rest, faith is working, faith is all things. Faith is part of every breath that you take. And the stories that we hear that encourage us and inspire us, this is our story in Hebrews 11. And the great lie and the great counterfeit is that we can read these stories as though they're just these superheroes of the faith and, and, and not just sons, not just saints of the faith. This isn't just Old Testament. There's no such thing as Old Testament faith. It says in the, in the scriptures that, that Abraham looked forward to the promised land and looked forward to the birth of his son, and that faith was accredited righteousness. What other righteousness is there other than Christ? It was the old covenant faith that leaned forward into new covenant faith, and we share the same story. And, 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 and he's not retelling the same stories over and over again. He's, he's writing a 2018 story through you. He's, he's asking, what are you going to do with the faith that I've given you? What are you going to do with the things that I've given you? Faith matters. Your life matters. And decisions matter. And that's what every story, although it's different, each one, one by one, is similar in the sense that God is using imperfect, weak people to do great things, remembered for all of eternity because of simple faith. And so I'm going to read our verse today, and then I'm going to read the Old Testament reference to that verse in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22, our verse for the day, by faith, Joseph, by faith, Joseph, the, the grandson of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, so actually great-grandson, Joseph, at the end of his life, at the age of 110, made mention of the exodus, exodus of, Israel, of the Israelites. He, he had made himself to the second command in Egypt, Egypt being one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful empire in the, nation, in the world at that time. Joseph um, was at the top of the hill, but knew somehow that he, he wasn't going to stay on that hill and his family wasn't going to stay on that hill forever. And so he tells his family, his sons and his grandchildren, that we're not going to be here forever. And when you go, don't go anyplace or don't just wander and scatter, but go to the place that God promised our great-great-grandfather Abraham and, and do not tarry and do not waver and go directly to this land. This is the instruction that he gives on his deathbed at the age of 110. He says, seeing the exodus of the Israelites, he gave directions concerning his bones. So this is what it's talking about, Genesis 50. Then Joseph, and I'm going to read through it, and, and, and we're just going to kind of listen to it as a story. Then Joseph fell on his father's face. Uh, Jacob, his father, is dying. Jacob's other name is Israel. He's the one that gave Israel its name Israel because he was called Israel, which is a promise of God and a covenant. So Joseph's father, Jacob, otherwise known as Israel, is on his deathbed, and jo Joseph is weeping. 
And he weeps over his father and kisses him. And Joseph commanded the servants and the physicians to embalm his father. So they were not poor. They were not meager little mice. They had well means around them. They were part of Egypt. They were well endowed and given many riches. And so the physicians, they had doctors even in that age, embalm Israel. This is Jacob to preserve, to honor his, his legacy. Forty days were required uh, for it, for this is how many um, are required for embalming. So there's 40 days. It's a very long process. It's not just quick, here today, gone tomorrow. There's a remembrance. And the Egyptians wept. So not only his people, but the, the foreigners wept for him. They didn't understand God or who Jacob was or what he stood for, but they re- re- respected the man Jacob, and they wept over him for 70 days. So it's 120, 110, right, days of... Of, of remembrance. And when the days of weeping uh, for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If I now have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, I am about to die in my tomb that I have, he- or my father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die in my tomb that I have hewed for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. So Jacob uh, in Genesis 33 had known enough to purchase land, a small plot of land for a hundred pieces of silver where he would be buried and that's where his legacy would be remembered. So he's referring, remember to bury me there. This is what Jacob is asking as his dying wish. And Pharaoh answers anything that, that Jacob needs. He, you know, your father is, is my relative as well and I, I honor him in that way. And he says, go up and go ahead and bury your father as you, he has made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father and with him went all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders, the household, this whole you know, parade of people to honor this man and all the elders of Egypt, as well as the household of Joseph, his brothers and the father's household. Skipping down to Genesis 50, and this is where Hebrews eleven twenty two really takes its root, ironically, in verse, starting in verse 22. Genesis 50, verse 22 says, Though, So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. So he's got several generations here, and he gathers them around. And uh, he says in verse 24, this is what he says to his family as his dying remark. He says, I'm about to die. This is much like his father Jacob, but God will visit you. And although I've not seen it, I can prophesy it. I know it's going to happen because of faith. And he's going to bring you out of this land of Egypt. This is not going to be your home. And he's going to bring you to the land that he called our great-grandfather Abraham to live in. And he says... uh, The sons of Israel, he says, swear this, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. In other words, I want to follow in my father's footsteps. I want to be buried in the plot of land that he purchased, but I don't don't want to be buried there yet. I want you to carry my bones with you and I don't want to rest in that land until you are resting in that land and made that place your home. So Joseph died in 110 years, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So if you're alive for any period of time here in America, you know that there are many kinds of movies and many great storytellers and directors, but really nothing can hold a candle, in my opinion, to the longevity and the consistency of the Disney brand. Am I right? Like, how does, how does the same company that comes up with Mickey Mouse come up with Buzz Lightyear, come up with Pinocchio, come up with the Lion I mean, this is just, when you talk about GOAT, you know, we're talking about LeBron James right now and the GOAT and being the greatest of all time. I mean, Disney's the GOAT. I mean, I don't have to, you don't have to really debate about storytelling and the nature of, of consistency of telling stories to children that are as young as six. I remember seeing The Lion King at the same time when Mufasa died. My six-year-old brother is sitting next to my 50-year-old uncle who's from China and blind, and they're weeping at the same time. That tells you something, right? 
And one of the things that's really powerful about Disney is that they're able to tell stories not only for 90 minutes, but for like 10 minutes at a time. Like they can have you weeping it up in 10 minutes. Isn't this amazing? And, 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 they, and they can have you excited about a lamp that bounces around on a Pixar thing and just is a desk. And it just, they know how to tell stories and they don't waste time doing it. They're, they're professional storytellers, among other things. One of the shorts that I grew up watching um, was the short that would show up before Dumbo, I think. It was a Buena Vista production from the 50s. It's a nostalgic theme. And it was this show, this short, that only lasted for about eight minutes and 30 seconds. I looked at it at YouTube yesterday. And it's this thing, have you seen it, called Lambert the Lion. So Lambert is a lion who gets dropped off by the stork that drops off Dumbo at the beginning in the train scene. And he drops him off because he's, he's confused and disorganized. And he drops off this lion, Lambert, in this flock of lambs. And the story continues that Lambert, because he's with lambs and spends his time all the time doing what lambs do, he thinks he's a lamb, but he's really a lion. And, and he, he struggles, even when he draws his first breath and roars what should be this really powerful, beautiful thing of coming to identity and figuring out who you are. He roars in the company of the family that should love and know him best, and he's completely laughed at. And they're just like, Lambert, why Lambert, Lambert. They're like teasing him. There's this song that they sing throughout the whole thing, and it's just so annoying because it's these stupid sheep. They're bullying this lion. You're like, lion, get a hold of yourself, Lambert, like you're a lion. And the song's like, Lambert, the silly lion, Lambert. He's always trying to be a woolly Lambert, Lambert, lion. Blah. And they're like beating him up. I mean, this is lion and the sheep, and you're like, just claw him to death. Why are you messing with it? And so they like headbutt each other. He's playing all the wrong games because he's using all his weaknesses instead of his strengths, and he just has no, no idea about his, this paradox of misfortune. He's a lion that's living with lambs. And so one night, this wolf comes in the middle of the night, howls at the moon, and, um, and the wolf um, grabs a hold while Lambert's asleep of Lambert's mom. Lambert's mom was like in the beginning of the movie, she's like crying because she thought she was the only lamb without a sheep, or sheep without a lamb, rather. And so you're, you're well aware of the relationship and the sweet, precious relationship between the mom and the lion, Lambert, sheep thing. And, 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 and so the wolf gets a hold of the mom, and the mom's screaming, Lambert, Lambert. And you're like, Lambert, this is your moment, dude. And Lambert's like nowhere to be found. He's like in the corner with his head underneath his paws with the other sheep. He's like terrified, Lambert. And then six minutes into the YouTube video, like his heart grows. And all of a sudden he grows a spine. And he realizes like all of a sudden because of the voice of his mom or because of the urgency of the moment, like, wait a minute, I'm not a lamb. I'm a lion. And quick as lightning, he just bolts up that hill like, and just makes mincemeat of this wolf, vanquishes the wolf, sends him over the hill, saves his mom. And this is the power of, of the storytelling is that we all connect to this. Identity is a powerful thing, right? The moral of the story of Lambert is that if we don't know who we are, we won't have a problem finding somebody that will tell us who we are. We're not in a vacuum of messages and identity um, cues that try and explain to us who we are and who we're not. And if we're not careful, like, we can absolutely create an entire paradigm and a worldview around our bullies or around our friends or around people that care about us or don't care about us. 
We can create false identities and false masks that we can wear um, around what we think are our weaknesses. And if we're, if we're weak or we think we're weak, we can, we can almost spend our entire life trying to be strong because we're afraid that maybe one day someone will find out that we're weak. Or, or we, someone someday thinks that we're dumb and they say that we can't read and we stutter when we read. And so we think that we're dumb. And so because we're dumb, we overemphasize and we try and you know, over-exaggerate our intelligence and use words we don't actually know what they mean because we just don't want to be seen as dumb. And so it's a, it's a fatal thing. It's a powerful thing. It's a tragic thing when somebody who has such a powerful identity, someone who has a lion identity in the case of Lambert, somebody who, who, is, who is made and built to, to rule and reign, somebody who's, who's made to be a father and a friend and, a, and an encourager and have gifts and so forth and, and can walk their entire life and have no idea who they are. And this is the, this is the promise of God. And this is what the, the scriptures, we talk about the promises of God and sing about the promises of God. God, God has created us for a purpose, created us for identity, and he is not silent. He wants to speak to us continually. His words for us are like the sand on the shores and his word is never void and his promises are always fulfilled. I mean, I looked it up before during worship. There's 800,000 words in the Bible and none of them are false. Imagine being a God like that, that any word that you would utter, even by mistake or even by a slip of the tongue, would not be able to be reversed. This is how promising, this is how permanent, this is how, how imminent and eternal that God is. And the Bible is, is filled with these promises. I mean, this is the, the nature of our God. The Bible is, I looked it up, Sold, it's the 1995 Guinness Book of Records, the most sold book of all time. At that time in 1995, five million people have purchased the Bible and probably even more. The YouVersion app has been downloaded 565,000 times in multiple languages. But yet, but yet, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 something like this continually, although his promises are so available, although the path is so inviting, although he is not discriminatory of race or gender or creed or background, although his promises are available as gifts, he says the road of faith that people actually believe them is narrow. And so there's promises. There's promises in that book that's on your coffee table. I promise out of 500 million, you probably own one of those books. 500 billion, excuse me. You probably own one of those books and it's sitting on your coffee table and here's the irony of the trick of the whole thing is that we're so lost and we so want to be approved of and we want to find belonging and we want to find our purpose and we want to find who we are and we want to rise to the potential that we feel like we have and we have our scriptures on our nightstand and we're too busy to read them. We're too stressed. We're too smart. We're too intelligent. We're too progressive to read these old dusty scriptures that my grandfather used to read. I mean, these things, these things aren't relevant today. I can take some of my advice and maybe back my life up with them a little bit, but we, we largely leave them unopened. And Jesus says there's a narrow road that very few people believe what these promises say. Very few people actually have faith and put their life on. I mean, a lot of people will swear on the Bible on the court and say, I believe every word is it true, but have no idea what it actually says. There's promises in the Bible that we have not read this week that will save your children if we were to read them, save you years off your life, 
save you years of stress and being lost and being confused. They will save you years and instead replace those years of loss and turmoil and brokenness and give you instead free blessing. But we are too busy with Netflix to get to that. We're too wise. We, 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 it's not enough for us. We need, we need more than that. And Jesus said, this is the age-old adage. He says that the words of God are like seeds that are just tossed out on the, on the path. The farmer goes out and he scatters all these seeds and he says, there's so many seeds, but so little fruit that comes of these seeds. That's the tragedy, right? He scatters these seeds all over the path and he says that some people, they don't understand it. And some people, they have the divine nature of God and the, and the, and the, the reflection of God and they want to know God, but they don't have anyone to teach them and no one's shared the gospel with them and no, them give, no one's given them a lens to understand it. So they, the seeds fall, but they just don't even sink in because they don't make any sense and there's no feet that are going to bring the good news. He says there's another group of people that they believe for a little while, but the promises take too long and it seems like the promises don't fulfill themselves fast enough. So it's kind of like, ah, you're taking too long. I'm going another direction. He says those seeds just kind of shrivel up and die. He says that some are persecuted. They're bullied out of their providence. They're bullied out of their promise. They're told they're not who they are. And so they listen to the louder voice of the echo around them rather than the voice that created them. And so the seed falls on them, but it doesn't actually take root. And finally, there's another one that just says, you know, you can actually have the blessing of God in your life, but not even understand what it is. The Bible says it's like a pearl before a pig. It's a pearl before swine. That a, that a pig could see a pearl that is more precious than all the slop. I mean, if they trade that one pearl in, they'd have steak to eat for years, but instead they just eat slop. And I used to preach and think that, man, if you could just get somebody to see the blessing they had to see Jesus, people have blessings, they don't even see him. And the myth is, is that, 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 that the blessings of God, because he's so good, are going to be evident, but the Bible says clearly there are many people that get blessings that never see it and never thank him for it. They never have faith to understand the blessing that's right in, in, in front of them. So Joseph was a man of promise. That's the thing I want us to get today is that Joseph didn't go on Zillow.com. He didn't know what was in the promised land. He just knew the promiser. He just knew it's like Wojciechowski, the ESPN analyst. I don't know if you guys follow sports, but there's certain people in every stream and of authority. If they say it, it's like, I don't care what it says. I believe this person. That's how much Joseph believed God. He didn't have to go and check out the real estate and fly a drone over it and take pictures. He just knew that if God is good, he's going to send me to a good place. But this is what he's referring to. The promises of God in the Old Testament are explained all throughout through this allegory of this certain area of land between the Tigris and Euphrates, this area they called Canaan, the area that is so viciously fought over between the Palestinians and the Israelites today, this place called the, the Promised Land, the, this place that was supposed to be filled with milk and honey, that was the place of shalom, a place where people could live out the plan that God had for them in the midst of a world that's broken. These are some of the promises that are about the promised land, I want you to see with your own eyes, Numbers 14, 8, if the Lord is pleased with us, when he will, then he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land which is flowing with milk and honey. It's just filled with provision. Deuteronomy 6, 10 says, then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to you. And it's a great splendid city that you never built. You just... You just walk into it as though it was yours, but you never labored for it, is what it says. There's vineyards there with grapes that giants have to carry on poles because they're so big. You're starving in the desert, and there's grapes and milk and honey, and the vineyards that come out of these grapes, you never had to plant them. This is the promise of God. 
And Joseph, he's never been even out of Egypt. He's on his deathbed. He doesn't even know that his people are going to be enslaved, nor does he need to know. He doesn't need to know that he's going to be, his family's going to be ushered out by the hand by God through the Red Sea. He doesn't know about the wandering in the desert. He doesn't know about, uh, about Joshua putting his first step into the water of the Jordan and the next step in the splitting of the seas. He doesn't know about Moses. He doesn't know about any things, but he knows the promise maker. And that's what he's choosing to buy into. And this is what he says. He says, my father Jacob has bought a plot of land and he's going to be buried there where he'll be remembered because burial is about legacy and remembrance. And my father will always be remembered for the faith that he had on this earth. But as for me and my bones, I don't want you burying my bones until you get there yourself. In other words, he's saying, when a man dies, he rests forever. And I'm not rested until you're in the promised land. And when my children's children walk wherever it is that we walk to need to walk to get to the promise and they see my embalmed bones, I want to remember them. They're not home until they're in God's promise. They're not going to settle until they're in God's promise. Last week, uh, Stephen brought a great message. I told um, Timothy, when Stephen preaches, I, I just I sit down and I think it's just because he's an elder and because he's got water on the bridge and he's kind of walked it out for years ahead of me. I just, there's this calm that comes that like I'm in good hands when he's up here, you know? Like I just feel like, I feel like I, I just, I'm ready to, to, to listen. I just feel like he's, he's gonna share from his experience. And during the time, actually it was funny, somebody mentioned, I don't know if you guys agree with this, but somebody said that um, he was kind of like a Caucasian Barack Obama, like his pace and his posture, he was like, and the, the people of God have faith. And, you know, he just has this cadence, which I kind of agree with. Um, but Kyra texted me this thing. She said, this is a generational blessing. I said, man, that feels right. I don't know what that means. And so I sat on it for a minute and I thought about it. And I said, it is. Because here's what happened, I believe, on Sunday. And Sundays like that is that a person that has walked down the path longer than you, that has kids and has seen the other side of the mountain and has risen in terms of success, in terms of, professionalism and so forth, and they stand, and they really have an opportunity to stand up and bless and curse, bless or curse. And what the elder generation, what the, what the elders of a church should be doing is blessing the younger one and, 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 and vice versa. There's an honor that goes backwards, but essentially what the elder is saying in terms of a generational blessing is he's saying, I've been around the mountain and I still need God for every step that I take. So if you ever get stuck in a chapter in a, in a time of life and you might think that you're bigger, better, stronger than God, think again, because I've been around the mountain before and I can tell you that every step that I've ever taken has needed God desperately. This is what the bones of Jacob would preach to all the generations from him until the feet set in, into the promised land is that you're not home until you're rested with God. You're not home until you've reached the promised land. You're not, you're not, you're not home until you've, you've actually stepped into all that he's asked you to. He's the creator. He's the maker. He's the one that names you. So he's the only one that knows how to place you. And my bones will not rest and neither should yours until you put both feet in the place that God promised you to be. And today, the promised land is not a strip in the Gaza Strip. It's not a geographical place of longitude and latitude. Hebrews helps us see, and we're going to transition into Hebrews chapter 4, that, that there's a spiritual promise, a spiritual promised land that we live in today in the new covenant. It's a supernatural promise. It's not about real estate. It's not about land. It's about covenantal love. It's about the rest of God. 
The R-E-S-T, the resting with God. And this is what Hebrews 4 tells us. This is a, a passage that I think really explains the equivalent of the promised land today. It says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For the good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united in faith with those who listened. So what the writer of Hebrews in chapter 4 is saying is that today we could take a field trip to the promised land, to the Gaza Strip, and that would not be the fulfillment of our inheritance today. Inside of the New Testament, that the promises of God have been, have been tethered with Jesus and the death, burial, and resurrection have been the fulfillment of what those promises are, and it's faith in Jesus alone, his grace, his blood, what he's done on the cross for us has opened the door to a life of righteousness, peace, and joy. Peace and pleasure with God. Shalom, the kingdom of heaven. This is our promise. It's not manifested. It's not physical. It's spiritual. This is what, what he is promising us today. It's so much more than milk and honey. It's so much more than what money can buy. It's so much more eternal than, than a city that's built without hands. This is, this is what he says. Therefore, this is the promise that we are going to rest in God. There's millionaires that would pay millions to have rest, just a little peace, just a little confidence, just a little assurance of who they are and where they're headed. This is what makes poor people rich, according to the scriptures. Verse 3. For we who have believed under that rest, he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from his work. In the Bible in Genesis, it talks about the seventh day God rested. That was what it means to rest from work, and he has invited us into that rest. But what the scripture is saying in Hebrews 4 as an allegory from the Old Testament is that rest is promised, but it's not always received by everyone, including those that have some faith, those that are believers. There is a rest, a peace, a shalom, and all is right with the world, and all is right with my heart, an extension of the kingdom of heaven right where we are today for free. But he says, actually, it's not even sometimes. It's very common that people don't experience this rest. It's very common. It's very common that believers who know Jesus, believe in Jesus, don't believe what Jesus says. And so although they experience the promise of eternal life, they don't experience the promise of abundant life and they never step into peace. And so although they have the promise of eternal life, their life down here is a mess. Filled with anger and judgmentalism, bitterness and greed. And all the promises. This is the great, right, tragedy of heaven. It's that God has died and raised and sent his spirit into a believer. And the believer has the canonized scripture so much more than Joseph. And, and they have opportunity to have faith in revelation and revelation and a free abundant gift. And yet they're too busy to, to receive it. And their lambs living as sheep. And they don't know who they are. And they don't know where they're going. And they believe in God. And they believe in the Bible in the sense of, do you believe what's in the Bible? Yes. What's in it? I don't know. It's a lucky rabbit's foot. It's the belief that my life should be good now, right, Jesus? I mean, I believed in you. I mean, when they said, I just, I confess with my mouth. I said that you're Lord. I mean, I believe in the Bible, right? I mean, isn't it supposed to just rain gold down on me? It's like faith by osmosis. He says there's a difference between believing God and believing in God and believing what he says. 
And it's very possible to have eternal life. That's the allegory I'll continue reading in just a moment. But that's the allegory is that they are freed from, from slavery. They're no longer under sin. In the allegory today, we're talking about the freedom from sin and the freedom from being entrenched with, with bitterness and greed and all these things. But then between that, there's a, there's a place and an invitation of faith. And without faith, they can be free from sin, but they'll just wander in the desert, chasing their tail. They don't know who they are. They don't know where they're going. They don't know what they're here for. And so they just waste their inheritance. I mean, just really waste it. There's a story in the Old Testament that talks about this, this man who who had this inheritance to inherit all this land and all this property and all this stuff, and he trades it for his, because he's hungry for a bowl of soup. But I, I dare to say we trade our inheritance for much less, for a little comfort, for a little approval, for a little promotion, for a little pat on the back. We trade our eternal promise that God wants to give us. And he says, not, actually, not, not everybody, very few will open the gift. There's a rest that is available. There's a, a place that rich people would pay millions for, a rest that's given for free, but that gift needs to be opened with faith. And so very few people have faith. This is what he says of them. They fail to enter because of their disobedience. Again, he appoints. These are God's people. These are not just people that are just pagans that don't believe in God. They believe God. They just don't believe what he's saying, and they don't follow what it's saying. It's saying, yeah, they're going to go to heaven. Yeah, they're with him forever. Yeah, they have eternity, but they're going to experience uh, all sorts of suffering on this earth and all sorts of problems and chaos internally in their life and, and lack of blessing mainly, lack of shalom that God wants to give for free. Why? Because of disobedience. Because they didn't listen. They didn't follow. They didn't put it to action. They read it like it was an advice book that he put on a postcard. He never actually trusted in it. And again, he appoints a certain today. Today, saying through David so long afterward, and the words already quoted today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This is the, the voice of heaven. Don't harden your hearts. There's so much more for you. Why would you take a bowl of soup for your inheritance? For if Joshua had given, him, given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. And this is talking about the Canaan rest, the Canaan rest, the promised land. We don't have a Canaan rest today. We have a Christ rest, resting with the Father, being with him, experiencing all that we have. But we read the scriptures and, and, and we just read it to prove what we already want to believe. We just go through it and we, sometimes we read it and it makes us feel good because it's a happy ending. We almost watch it like we watch Lambert. You know, there's a difference between a moral of a story. There's a difference between, you know, principles, good values, and promises. God's too relational for principles. He's not a slot machine where you just put in and take out. Oh, if I tithe, I'll get rich. That's not how... He's relational, and so he gives promises. And so many people want to use the Bible for the wrong way, and they just read it. It's like, oh, well, that makes me feel better because I know the happy. It's like, yeah, there is a happy ending, but you know what? There's also promises that I want you to leverage and gifts that I want you to receive. And so, so very few put those things into action. And we read the Bible for what we want it to say, to validate our points. What Jesus is saying about the seeds on the soil is so few of us in this room actually go to the Bible and say, God, I want you to change my mind. I don't know the answer. I want you to tell me what the answer is. Very few. This is a precious gift, and that's why it's such a, a great inheritance. It is so free, but so few people accept it. I want to read one more passage that I believe is the counterpart to the resting promise. I believe there's two different general principles and promises here that we want to look at. But Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18 Paul is praying. He says, I want you to know of the riches and glorious of your inheritance. I don't want you to forget who you are and trade your inheritance for a bowl of soup. 
Or like the prodigal son, go and squander your inheritance on loose women and, and lifestyle and live out and then end up eating the food of the pig. I want you to have your inheritance. I want you to hold your inheritance. And I want you to, to enjoy what you have because I've paid a price for it. I want, I want you to enjoy what I paid for. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? And this is the definition here. Toward us who believe. Not just in him, but believe him. About finances. Like literally believe. Okay, you say this about money. I'm going to believe what you say. It doesn't make sense to me. That's not what they're saying, but I'm going to believe what you say. This is what faith is. He says, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. uh, Excuse me. When he raised him from the dead, this is backing up in verse 20, and seated him in his right hand, speaking of Jesus, in heavenly places, he seats Jesus far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name. So Jesus is above every name. Now listen to this. Jesus sits on his throne, right? The earth is his footstool, the scripture says. Not only in this age, but in the age to come. And then it says this, and he put all things under his feet, And listen, and he gave this as head over all of his church. If if Jesus is the head and the church is of his body, then he's not only put authority and dominion under him, but he's put it under the church. The church was never meant to be passive. The church was never meant to be along for the ride. The church was never meant to just be kind of surviving and hanging on until we get there. The church was meant to rule and reign with Jesus. The church was meant to go into situations and not just be clinging on for dear hope, help, so we don't get changed and, you know, unpurified and separate. Like he's saying, he's saying, I've not only given you a rest, but I've given you an opportunity to reign with me. These are the two principal invitations that Jesus comes in all the New Testament. Come and follow me and I will give you rest. I will give you a rest that you'll never experience in any drug or any substance or any affirmation or any ambition or approval. I'm going to give you a rest, but not just to be here and survive and be on vacation. I need you to get busy because you are here to reign with me in authority, to be the head and not the tail, to be a healing balm, to be, to be somebody that changes the temperature, doesn't just complain about it, somebody that doesn't just watch the news and sort of get bitterly entangled with some debate. No, I want you to be Jesus and I want you to bring my kingdom into this earth. This is the promise. This is the promised land. This is what Joseph's bones are preaching to. This is what Jesus, who Joseph represents Jesus, is saying, you're not home yet until you put both feet into this. You're not a lamb, you're a lion. You're meant to influence. You're meant to change. You're meant to bless your neighbor. You're meant to bless your children. You're meant to change the world. This is, faith isn't just about, I trust you that one day this isn't gonna hurt so bad. Faith is I'm going into my consequence and I'm going to trust the promise of God over my circumstance and watch as he tells my circumstance what to do lest I tell God what to do about the circumstance. This is the promised land that he promises. This is not the Gaza Strip anymore. So those are the two things. These are the two promises. Matthew 11, 28, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest. The thing you're looking for the thing that you maybe not want, but you do need is my rest. And then Matthew 28, 18, all authority. I put my feet on the earth as a footstool. In heaven and earth has been given to me. Now you go and make disciples of all nations. Don't rule over people like the Gentiles do, he says. He says, serve them and allow the kingdom of heaven to come forth. You're not an ambassador of the political dominion of, of Christianity on this world. You're, you're an ambassador of my kingdom. And you're bringing this rule and reign into this place Today not when you're dead, not when you're gone. And like Joseph's bones, never found rest until they enter the promised land, that you would never find rest until you enter into the full promises of God. I'm going to close today by just reading some promises. I believe by the Spirit of God, these are promises that are true. They're gifts under the Christmas tree. They wait 
in the best-selling book of all time that somebody might look at these promises with some faith. Not just believe that they were true or believe they're true for somebody else, but to believe that they're true for me in this moment today. This is what this is what it's all about. It's not a storybook to help us feel better about our problems or validate our, our ideas or comfort us. God is conforming us to the very image of, image of Christ to deliver us an inheritance, a full rest and full reign with him. And we will not be satisfied of our identity until we put both feet into that promise. And these are the promises that he gives us that we just so flagrantly throw away. Isaiah 40, 31, I'll read through them. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles, and they will run and not grow weary. Either God's true or he's a liar. He's made it pretty difficult to weasel out of what he says. I'm God. I'm omniscient. I know more than you, and I always will. And when you're gone, I'll be here after you. And I'm trying to tell you, ye of little faith, child of mine that I love, your 25 years doesn't trump mine. Hope in the Lord. That's where your hope comes from. You have a business meeting tomorrow? You over, overworked, overstressed, you're not sleeping enough? I don't know what, the, I'm not going to tell you the, 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 the precept or the principle, but I'm going to give you a promise. If you hope in the Lord, you'll never be tired. You can be on three hours of sleep and be full of passion. He says, hope in the Lord, you'll renew your strength. Exodus 20, honor your father and mother and you will live long in your promise. Bet you we could have some mic time right now and talk about why it's difficult to honor our fathers and our mothers. We either believe that narrative or we believe God's, and God says that there's a peace that we'll never have if we don't figure out how to find closure. We never make our peace. They might be dead. They might be gone. You might not be too safe to talk to. You might not need to call them, but you do need to find rest with them. You need to find blessing with them because if God says it, he won't change it. There's a blessing that you will not have and your children will not have and your children's children will not have. And I don't care how many Henry Cloud books you read, unless you figure out how to have peace with God, you will not, or peace with, with, with your family, you will not have this blessing. This is his promise. James 1.5, if any one of you lacks wisdom, does anybody have a decision to make today? Anybody have something to think about? He says, you're not going to find it through YouTube. A how-to. He says, if you lack wisdom, ask God. If you ask generously, he will, without fault, give it to you. He's not going to be made a liar because you have financial needs. Ask God. Take him at his word. This faith is accessible to children. The reason why it sounds so silly is because it's childlike. But he invites us and he says, there's so many that either have riches and don't know what to do with it or don't have the riches they should have because they don't ask God. And they live their life with the promise by their bedstool gathering dust or in their iPad as their least used app. And they're off trying to figure it all out. He says, why don't you just trust God? Ask God. James 4, 7, I'll move more quickly. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Are you being attacked or tempted? Jesus has too. And he's He's shown us and told us through Jesus as the great high priest, the way to resist the devil is to submit yourself to God. Go into your prayer closet, close the doors, it says in Matthew 6, and say, God, whatever you want me to do, I will do it. And watch how the devil flees. Submit yourself to God. Do what he says, whatever he says, when he says it. 1 John 1.19, or 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us in our sins and purify us from all, from all, 
all unrighteousness. You're struggling with a sin. I am too. You're stumbling. I do too. You go to God. You confess it. There's power in his blood. You'll get snared in a trap and fear of man so long as you never, as you resist the, the blessing to come to the light and just bring it. I, I'm doing this wrong. I don't know how to fix this. This is a sin in my life and I don't want it anymore and I'm wrong and you're right and let me be a liar and let you be telling the truth because I need to be healed of this. It says there is blessing and, and meeting place for any man or woman or child that would come before Jesus Christ in his blood and say, I need forgiveness and I need to be purified. That's your promise. First Chronicles 7.14, and then I didn't get into this as a whole other sermon, but most of the promises that were in the promised lands, you notice they're we promises, not me promises. God's waiting on not just a person, but a, a group, a church is so anti-American, but a church of people. Second uh, Chronicles 7.14 says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn to their wicked ways, they will heal, hear from heaven, and I will forgive them their sin and heal their land. He's saying that if we were just for an ounce, for an instant and for an ounce of of repentance, if we were to go to him and instead of complaining about the racism and the gun control and all the stuff about what somebody else needs to do, if we would just take it upon ourselves and go before the Lord and say, me first, God, I humble myself before me. Break me, God. Show me my racism. Show me what I do. Show me my sin. If, if we were to do that as a congregation, he said, watch what I'll do with that church. If you go first, if you actually listen to the promise and, 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 and take it for face value, this is the sermon that Chris doesn't want to preach, but I'm, I'm going to preach it. You ready, Chris? Malachi 3.10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. You ready? Chris, I want you to stand up and wave your towel. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. That there may be food in my house. Test me in this, he says. Test me. Boy, that's the first one. He said, test me. Watch what I do when, I, when, when you do this one. He says, see that I will not throw open the floodgates. I knew a pastor one time, and he was hyperbolic to the core. I mean, every joke was like, literally, it was a whale. I mean, he would just hyperbolic. God is not hyperbolic. A yes is a yes and a no is a no. If he wants to say it's a floodgate, he really means it. He says, get a group of people, a faithful family of people, and bring the entire tithe, not budgeted or thought about or all this stuff, the first and best, 10%, into the storehouse. And he says this. He says, see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven on your children, your children's children, your youth ministry, your kids' ministry, your worship ministry, your outreach ministry, the, the, the city around you. See if I don't pour out as much blessing that there will not be enough room to fill it. What kind of budget is that? He's saying, test me in this. Go against the grain. It's going to take extra listening. It's not apparent. It's not just a you know, just a blanket universal blessing that love wins and everybody ends up happy. That's not what the gospel says. It says those that live by faith are just. That grace is a gift. He says, I'll give you eternal salvation. All you have to do is have faith. It's all grace, but it's a gift and it needs to be opened by faith. The area of finances, the area of forgiveness, the area of relationship, the area of peace. Revelation 3, 5. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out their name from a person in the book of life. Somebody here needs to hear today that if, if you've accepted Jesus, as your Lord and Savior, you are, you have peace with him. He loves you and there's nothing that will separate. And that is a promise. And it's not a feeling. It's a law. He's legally done it. It's not because he was in a good mood. He paid the penalty. And so our anchor holds in heaven. We don't trust our conscience. We don't trust what our mind says or our emotion says at any given moment. We trust in his word. It says, if his word says that he loves us and that we are covenanted with him and that he 
He is for us and not against us, then we trust His Word and not our circumstance and not the words of discouragement in us or around us. Do not be anxious about everything in every situation. Pray to Him. Give petition. Would you stand with me on this last promise with thanksgiving present uh, for your request to God? I'm going to invite Timothy to come forward. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ. Raise your hand if you need peace. Don't be ashamed. I need a little more peace in my life. You need peace that isn't about I know what I'm doing tomorrow and every You need a supernatural peace that's going to let you run on three hours of sleep and seem like you've been resting with God. That's the peace you want, right? That's the rest you want. God, I thank you right now for, it's not, I'm not going to pray for peace. You know what I'm going to pray for? I'm going to pray for one faith, a unified faith, a faith that doesn't falter, a faith that doesn't back down, a faith that doesn't just second guess and, and hinder and tarry, a faith that thinks, doesn't check its mind at the door, but a faith that believes. That if I have a thought that's contrary to that faith, contrary to your word, I choose your word. I submit myself to your ways. I'm not too smart for you, God. And so I choose faith. I come to you with, and this is the promise that comes out of that passage, Philippians. We we bring everything before you, every thanksgiving, every supplication, every need, every child, every complaint, every issue, we bring before you because why would we keep something out of blessing when we can give it to you for free and receive the blessing we've always needed? We repent of thinking we're too smart for you, thinking that it's too Southern or old-fashioned or Baptist to believe you anymore, of making fun of just our forefathers who just believed. We want to see a new movement and a new thing done in this, in this world, but we know that it's the same God. And we trust your word and we know where to go. And we teach our children and children's children how to step into the promise of God. The promise of God doesn't get delivered until it's opened by faith. And so we ask you for the one thing that's going to be the key to open it all up, the thing that, that, that Stephen so boldly preached last Sunday, faith to act. God, that we would be a church rooted in your scripture, highlighted like Chris's Bible I've seen before is just painted with highlighter, Lord, that we would be filled that, with those scriptures of God. Would you renew our faith? Would you sharpen our faith? Would you form our faith that we might receive the gifts that you so desperately want to pour out? We thank you that it's for free in your son's name. Amen. Thanks for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please let us know by leaving feedback on our iTunes podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc. Thanks for exalting Jesus with us.